Hello, thank you for joining me for episode 8 of Anatomy of Tone. This week I'm going to introduce you to a couple musical terms and their definitions, such as motive, sequence, and phrase. We're going to discuss what the best DAW is to use when you're looking to figure out what software to use for your home recording or professional studio setup. Then I'm going to do a deep dive into the Analog Man Sunface BC-108, which is the silicon-based fuzzface circuit. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would help me out if you leave some remarks or give me a rating on Apple. The algorithms really like when there are ratings and comments left on podcasts, so it makes my podcast more visible to others that also might be interested in it. Let's dig in. I think it's really important to have a good sense of musical language when you have to communicate with other musicians. It just helps everybody have a point of reference and to communicate and know what each other are trying to express. Imagine that you grew up thinking that... Uh, cayenne pepper was sugar and you went to someplace asked them to put a lot of cayenne pepper in something you were ordering got it and all of a sudden you were very surprised to sense how spicy it was because for your whole life you were referring to cayenne pepper as sugar similar things happen in music sometimes where you're communicating with people and sometimes you're using the wrong language and you may in your mind know what you want but you're not really expressing it as eloquently to other musicians. I've been around some musicians who sometimes are insecure about musical language and take an offense to it. I was around somebody for a long time that was pretty emotionally abusive and would be so degrading whenever I would try to uh, use any kind of music terminology for anything that I was trying to discuss as if it was too highbrow or, you know, you didn't need to know that. It was, it was a lot of, um, of course, based around insecurity, but also uh, a bit of a, a, that narcissistic vibe of they don't need to know any better. And I'm encouraging you to know better because if you say to somebody, hey, I want you to play a pedal tone over this, or I want you to play as a triple forte here, it just lets people know exactly what you want. If they have a reference for it, they can do it a lot faster. So I don't think that we need to put the stigma of musical language being associated with higher education or paying or having enough money to go to college. Uh, I did not go to college. I dropped out of high school and I taught myself a lot about music and then started mentoring with people, taking private lessons. So my knowledge of music theory, music language, comes from self-exploration and study. So I don't consider it to be an elitist or highbrow thing. And I really don't think that you should either. I think uh, consider it a way to be able to more clearly define what you want when you're working with people. So it gives you more power and it makes it less stressful to get to the desired effect you're looking for in the end. I've been on a lot of sessions where artists have not been able to communicate their wishes and they will do something similar to what I was mentioning about with the sugar, cayenne, pepper analogy, or sometimes they just kind of shut down because they can't explain it, or we end up spending so much time chasing our tail because they just can't explain what they're hearing. It would have saved them a lot of money and frustration if they had developed just a little bit more of a musical language to be able to describe what they want. And look, if you're serious about music, this is something you're going to be dealing with a lot. So why wouldn't you want to know more about the craft that you're doing. So to help this every once in a while, I'm gonna throw a few terms out there and explain what they mean so they could become part of your vocabulary. 
This week, I want to start with the idea of what a motif is. I'm going to talk about a phrase, and I'm going to talk about a sequence. Arnold Schoenberg explains a motif as being the smallest independent particle in a musical idea, which are recognizable through their repetition. So motifs are tiny little bits that are very recognizable. A motif is much smaller than a phrase or what some people refer to as a riff. So it's a much smaller chunk of a larger piece that we may use that is recognizable over and over again. For instance, let's say I play a little lick like this. Now, if we think about that, that's probably a smaller piece of a bigger moment that's gonna happen. That's obviously not our whole song, but that little combination of notes is something that we can take and move around and use in a bunch of different ways. So if I'm thinking about a motive, I'm thinking about the shape of it. Sometimes I'm thinking a bit about the rhythm. So if I'm gonna move it around, I wanna try to keep somewhat of the similar concept. So I may actually think about the intervals. The first two intervals are G, D, E, B, right? So that's a fourth, right? And this is a major second, and this is a fourth. So we basically have two fourths and a major second in it. That's our motif. So what if I take that now and I move it to, now let's move it to a different um, uh, key center, right? So now what I say, I'm gonna start on the key of uh, C now. So we said fourth, and then we said major second, and then fourth. So we had it at G, and then I moved it to C as a starting pitch. I might think of using that motif in a number of different ways, such as, I'm gonna move it now. Gonna go back to the original. So I just moved it around a little bit. Uh, and you can sometimes, you know, you can emit a note or you can, in theory, change one of the pitches, but I'm, I'm trying to basically take something that's recognizable and be able to use it, maybe starting on different pitches or have different functions for it. So that's how we would like to think of a motive. It's like just a little small chunk that you can take and move around. So it's almost like a cell, right? It's a little piece that is going to be put together with other pieces to make a much larger piece. Like think of them as like Lego blocks, right? That you're, you're stacking together. This isn't a big Lego block. That would be like a phrase, which we'll talk about in a second. It's a much smaller Lego block. A sequence by definition is a particular order in which related events, movements, or things follow each other. So we apply this to music by thinking, how do we do a specific order? Like if we take a motif and it took this, right? Or motif. What is, how do you say this? Motif? Motive. I see it spelled different ways sometimes. It gets a little confusing. Okay, so if I have that motive and I want to do a sequence with it, I'm going to sequence this up by whole steps. So you heard, I took that same motive and I just kept moving it up whole steps. So I did G, D, E, B. Then I did A, E, F sharp, C sharp. And then I did B, F sharp, G sharp, D sharp. So I kept the interval relationships intact. Right, fourth, major, second, fourth. Fourth, major, second, fourth. Fourth, 
major second, fourth. That's a good example of what sequencing means. Now, you just don't have to do it with motives. You could do it with a full measure. You could do it with a phrase. A lot of different ways we can sequence larger amounts of music. The term phrase means structurally a unit approximating to what one can sing in a single breath. I got this from Arnold Schoenberg's book about composition. So if we think about this, a phrase is about as much time as it takes you to sing a breath, right? And that would almost feel like what a sentence is. We speak that way a lot, right? So think about you say a sentence, you run out of breath, you put some punctuation there, and then you start your next sentence. A phrase, I think, is a lot more similar to what I would call is a riff. A riff is sort of a slang for a phrase. We could think of a riff and phrase basically meaning the same thing, just depending on who you're talking to is what language they may use. If I take that motif I was playing before, let's turn that into a full phrase. I'm actually going to breathe while I'm doing it. That's what I would call a phrase. And to me, that phrase felt like it ended with a question mark, right? If I did another phrase, I'd probably want it to be the answer to that question. So the first one was the question. Maybe the second one is the answer. That's a little more closure to it. So the two phrases. Feels like it has some closure to it. We said something, right? I asked a question, got an answer. Now it's time to ask another question and get an answer. In a future episode, we'll get more into development and variations, the way that we can get more variety into our phrases and motives and sequences. For now, I'm just going to focus on phrases, sequences, and motives. These are some of the basic building blocks for music, and I'm sure you've heard these terms before. If you're like me, you've blurred some of them together and didn't have an idea of what each one clearly was. So I hope I gave you some insight to that. And let me know if you have any more questions. often get asked about my recommendations for the best DAW to use for recording and production. It's not a clear-cut answer because it has a lot to do with the way each person's brain works and also the type of work that they're doing. They all excel in different areas. They all essentially do the same thing, but depending on what task you're trying to achieve, they may be better suited than other ones, or I should say faster and more efficient at it. For instance, recording audio in Luna or Pro Tools is way more efficient and makes more sense for editing and comping than it does in Logic or Ableton. And working with MIDI is probably the most flexible and the deepest in Logic. So it's just, how are you working? What kind of work are you doing? What is your goal? I am personally more audio centric. I record real instruments uh, just because I play them and, I, and that's the way I like to work. So I use analog synths. I use real pianos and guitars and drums and bass. 
I don't use a lot of MIDI. I don't enjoy working with MIDI that much. I understand that many people do these days and, and they prefer to work that way. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not the way that my brain works the best. So I prefer to use real instruments and tweak sounds in real time. So I use Universal Audio's Luna software. It, as far as recording audio, it works very similar to Pro Tools, same key commands and very similar ways of comping. But they've definitely streamlined it and made it, I think, a lot more uh, analog flow centric than Pro Tools is. Uh, it, it's there's, there's a lot of features I actually prefer about Luna, the printing with the effects if you want to, the UAD plugins. You can print them right to the track. Uh, and then also uh, exporting, editing, and um, mixing. I find it's just a cleaner and more straightforward interface. I find I can work a lot faster in Luna, you know, assigning outputs, inputs. Everything is faster and more straightforward. I don't have to think about it a lot. It is a lot more like being in a, in a real recording studio, more so than Pro Tools. So for that reason, I love it for doing audio. I can cut an audio track uh, and make my cuts or, and I can uh, crossfade and do all my phase in like in seconds, like I could work so fast in it. So I love it for that reason. And I find it sounds awesome. I really love their plugins uh, and it just, it's, it's an efficiency thing for me. Now it isn't as strong as MIDI. It does everything I need it to do with MIDI. Sometimes I have to use a sample library for orchestrating stuff and, uh, or just some, some random instruments that I, I need to use. So it's, uh, it has everything I need to do those basic functions. And mostly you can do everything you'd want to do with MIDI. It just isn't laid out in, I think, as much of a functional way as it is in Logic. Logic has always been more MIDI-centric, more so than audio. And you'll know when you start recording audio in Logic that it's just not its strong point. Can it do it? Sure it can. Is it easy to edit? Not as much, you know, it's, uh, it takes more time to do crossfades. It takes more time to just deal with exporting audio files if you need to. So if you record a ton of audio, Logic definitely can feel more sluggish and, uh, and just frustrating. But if you do MIDI, it's going to be great for that because it's just has so many options as far as dealing with MIDI. Pro Tools has been industry standard for such a long time and it's great. I don't love Avid so much as a company and having to deal with monthly subscription plans is a drag. And Luna is free if you own any uh, Universal Audio hardware interfaces. So that's an advantage. At Pro Tools, you have to pay a monthly subscription and there's just things that they haven't fixed. I mean, the input output matrix is always kind of complicated, overly complicated and a mess. And it's just, ah, you know, with any of these, it becomes an issue if you're going to try to use an, a, a controller, a hardware controller. I use Mackie uh, HUI controllers, which honestly like interface differently with each of uh, the software. None of them are perfect find the, the controllers I have don't work the best with uh, Pro Tools. So they work pretty good with Luna. doesn't do everything, but it, it does um, on what I need it to. Uh, so as with any of them, it's important to do the research to figure out how you're going to be working and what gear you have that interfaces with it. Some people like Pro Tools because it interfaces with a lot of studios. Most studios are using Pro Tools. Pro Tools is great at uh, comping and, um, and editing audio. The MIDI in it, 
I feel leaves a lot to be desired. I prefer actually Luna's MIDI editing capabilities to Pro Tools. Not really a fan. Uh, so I just feel like it's old software that needs updating that they just got to a point and they haven't really kind of pushed it further. But I do know a lot of professional musicians that use it and there's nothing wrong with using it as there isn't with Ableton. Ableton is its own thing and offers some looping capabilities that Pro Tools and Luna do not. Logic does now offer some Ableton-like behaviors as far as setting scenes and triggering samples, which is really cool. I feel like it's still not as eloquently designed as Ableton. Ableton is well-designed in the sense, too, that it doesn't take as much CPU to run it. I feel like they have done a smart job of not being overly fancy with the graphics. And they thought about Ableton for live usage and you know, crashes and efficiency. So it's pretty streamlined in that sense. So you may like using Luna if you like triggering scenes and samples. And uh, they're all viable as is Cubase. I think, well, I guess you can't really do demos of, of most of these. I think Pro Tools, you can, you can since you're doing monthly subscriptions, you could try it out for a month. I don't really think that you can try Logic, although if you have GarageBand now, GarageBand is like a light version of Logic. And if some of that makes sense to you, it just gets so much better when you move to Logic itself as opposed to GarageBand. Uh, Luna, you can try for free if you have an Apollo interface uh, or one of the universal audio audio interfaces. So that's the thing that sucks because in an ideal world, you would spend a week with each of them and just see how your brain is working with each of them, how the layout is. Uh, I work well with Luna. It's just my brain. It's almost like Luna becomes an instrument for me. The key commands, the way it mounts audio, everything about it is how my mind thinks about music. And when I use uh, Pro Tools, not so much and Logic, not as much. I started out on Logic and it still doesn't feel as fluid as Luna does after only using Luna for a couple of years. So it just says something to the design and layout and thoughtfulness of, of the software. It doesn't mean that Luna is going to work for you in the way that you make music. So you can't really listen to people when they say this is the best DAW. You have to kind of think about the work you're doing. Am I mainly working in video? Do I have to interface a lot with other studios with the same project files? Uh, do I mostly do audio and is being efficient and getting great sounds the most important thing, which it is for me, which is why I'm using Luna. Uh, so there are a lot of factors that can lead into that. They all will get the job done. You can make amazing music in any of the DAWs. You can make them sound great. It's how easy it is to make them sound great that can vary, but they all can sound amazing. You can make great music in any of them. So if you've just picked one and you're working in it, then just go for it. If you're looking to try them out, watch demos on them and the ones that you can download and try, download and try it and, and see. Do not do this when you're about to embark on a major project. Make sure you have time to experiment and try and learn. You don't want the stress of trying to learn a new DAW when you have to be creative or you're on a timeline or somebody's paying you even worse. Don't do that. Just experiment in your spare time in the evenings. If you already are using a DAW, continue to use that DAW 
in the daytime if we work and then take some time in the nighttime to experiment with a new DAW to see and compare and see how you like the workflow of it. I've used them all at this point. And, um, you know, like I said, they all have strengths, but I'm really using Luna, although I do have a couple others on my machine in case I need to open up sessions. Luna is just the one that I'm using these days. So good luck in your trials of different DAWs and finding the one that's right for you. going to discuss the fuzz face style fuzz circuit. Fuzz is a really interesting area of sound manipulation to me. There are so many variances between fuzz pedals. To me, it's a broader range of differences than I would say like overdrive pedals or a lot of other pedals. The differences are pretty broad with fuzz circuits. Now we have a couple of basic families. We have like the maestro style fuzz. We have the tone bender MK1 1.5 MK2. We have the fuzz face style. We have the big muff style. And there's a couple of modern styles of fuzz circuits. But generally, a lot of the clones or people are designing fuzz pedals are, are building the designs off of one of those early ideas. Now the fuzz face is somewhat related to the Tone Bender uh, MK 1.5, but I'm not going to get into the specifics of how they're different. You can actually look up on Analog Man's website. He has some incredibly in-depth information about fuzz faces on there. He's an expert on it and knows more about this circuit than I think anybody for this discussion, as the benchmark, I'm going to use the Analog Man Sunface because I just feel like Analog Man is making the best version of the Sunface, or I should say the Fuzzface circuit. Now, other people are making them, and some I found are okay, but I don't think anybody has the depth of knowledge like Mike Piera does, who is Analog Mike, when it comes to this circuit. And much in the same way as I was talking about the Teese RMC Picture Wah and how uh, Jeffrey Teese is such a knowledgeable expert in the Teese Picture Wah or Wawas, just period. The same exists with Analog Man. So I'm going to use the Analog Man BC108 Sunface for this discussion today. Eventually, I'm going to do an article about the Germanium version Sunface as well because they sound considerably different from one another. Back in the 90s, when I started playing electric guitar, I became interested and wanted to buy some effects pedals. And the Fuzz Face was one of the early ones I bought. It was a Dunlop reissue. I was playing through... A Fender Twin Reverb and a Jazz Chorus, which were really both the wrong amp to use that style of pedal with. And you'll even see a mention about this on the Analog Man website. I'm talking about how a lot of people will get uh, fuzz face style pedals and plug them into the wrong amp and, and have a bad experience. So I had a bad experience with it. It didn't sound good. It sounded rather flat and there was just no magic to it. I just didn't really understand what was so special about it, it was turning the volume down, no matter what I did, it just kind of sounded dull. Now, they don't tend to interact with a clean, super clean amp, like a Twin Reverb on like 2.5 so well. That's just not really a great combination for this pedal. I didn't know that then, but I think it was also coupled with the reissue just wasn't a great reissue. It wasn't a great sounding pedal. 
It turned me off to the idea of the fuzz face circuit for many years. It took me quite some time to discover the analog man sun face pedals to realize that there was a whole different world of that circuit out there and how much I actually did and really enjoy that sound. Now, there have been many well-known recordings that use and feature the fuzz face on them. Of course, we know that Jimi Hendrix used it and David Gilmour used the solid state version. Actually, Hendrix used both in his career. He started out using the germanium and then later on did use the silicone version. Uh, David Gilmour used the silicone version. But we can find players like Eddie Hazel from Funkadelic and countless other players throughout music history since the inception of the fuzz face that have used it. Today, I'm gonna look at the silicone version of the fuzz face, which is the BC-108 circuit. So when Dallas Arbiter started making the fuzz face, they used a germanium transistor in it, and the germanium transistor they used was the NKT-275. It was a germanium transistor that was used from 66 to 68. So in 1969, Dallas Arbiter switched to silicone transistors because they're more consistent. Okay, what do I mean about consistency? Well, germanium transistors can be a little cranky with temperatures. Say you're playing an outside festival and the sun's beating down on your pedal. After a while, your pedal is going to start to act a little unpredictably. And it's not like unpredictable in a cool way. It's like unpredictable in a way that it becomes somewhat useless and the notes lose definition. I've had this happen on festival stages. Sometimes I've been on tour and you have a bunch of dates. It looks like a lot of them are inside dates, theaters, clubs, and all of a sudden you're doing a, a couple runs of uh, outdoor festivals. And I did a festival, maybe it was Telluride or can't remember where it was. It could have been in Colorado. We were outside and by the time we got on stage, the sun was pounding on us because of where the sun was positioned and the stage was. And it started overheating the fuzz pedal. I also couldn't see my tuner, which I'll have to talk about in another instance about dealing with solving that problem when playing outside. I would have to be moving my pedal board back. I tried to be moving back during our set to avoid the sun, but of course the sun was slowly setting. It would shine on the, the gear more and more. So it was really hard because the sun kept uh, pounding on the fuzz face, I should say the sun face throughout the whole set. And it was really hard to use fuzz for that set because it was just it got to a point it was acting very bizarrely now i'm talking about the germanium so this is a situation where using a silicone based fuzz face would have been a lot more consistent i've heard of people putting their fuzz faces in a refrigerator before they use them and there's all kind of funny stories about people trying to to deal with that to get through a set of music or being in a hot room on a recording session uh, to get through it without the pedal acting erratically but the thing is is that by replacing it with a silicone transistor it, it it sounds different and i don't know i don't necessarily prefer one or the other it depends on the situation so it's not just a, a clean like swap and you're saying oh well i'm just going to only use silicone because it sounds or it's more consistent or stable there's just times where the germanium sounds better and i think i like the way it reacts with the volume knob more it does this really cool thing where you roll the volume knob back maybe one notch and you still get a pretty thick fuzz sound 
but it's not super compressed and you can really cut through a mix really nicely. When it's all the way up, it's very compressed and thick, but just rolling it back a hair, all of a sudden you got you have a lot more attack to your fuzz sound. So it's a trick I use a lot when I need my fuzz tone to cut through on stage. And in fact, in the inside of the germanium based Sunface that I have from Analog Man, there's a dial in there that you can switch so that you can basically set it up so that the pedal, if you click it on, your guitar volume is all the way up. You can regulate the volume going into the fuzz circuit so it'll actually emulate you rolling back your volume knob a little bit. So if you want to always have your guitar volume on 10, but you want the Analog Man Sunface to sound like it's on with your guitar volume on nine, so you get that nice attack, you can actually do that. Analog Mic is quite aware of uh, how to manipulate these pedals and, and the ways that they, they shine. Each one is its strengths and weaknesses. You know, fuzz pedals are funny. If you look at the schematics, they, they appear to be pretty simple devices, but as I think even with like cooking, right? It's like somebody who really knows how to cook and make something incredibly complex with the most limited of ingredients. A lot of people will get transistors and stuff, fuzz pedals and put them together and they just don't sound right. This is because they don't have as much experience or reference to what some of the prized versions of those pedals sound like. So this is where Mike Piera has a lot of experience. He's repaired and listened to and checked out the designs of a lot of the best sounding fuzz faces so he can base his models that he's making or you know when he's tuning them and checking the components and listening he knows what ones sound the closest to the most favored models and it's that awareness or that sense of taste that really separates McPira from a lot of his peers one thing that's interesting about the bc 108 sound is I do think with the guitar volume all the way up that you hear a bit more of the fundamental tone, the fundamental pitch. I feel like the germanium-based fuzz faces, I use the Analog Man 2N standard model. I really like the sound of that pedal. It has a little more like, mm, I would say like some of the upper harmonics are a little more present in it. You hear some more of the overtones just naturally with the guitar volume all the way up, almost like you get a little more of that ring modulation effect now. I'm not saying that you can't get that with the BC-108 by rolling the volume knob back because you can, and it has some really cool ring mod type effects on it, but I'm talking about with the guitar volume all the way up. So I'm comparing just the full out fuzzed compressed sound of the two. And so in this case, the BC-108 is just a little more clear on the, uh, the fundamental pitch. Let's discuss the amp situation a little bit. So Hendrix most notably played through Marshall amps live. In the studio, he used a couple of different amps from time to time. One of the biggest associations we have with using fuzz face style circuits is running into an amp that isn't perfectly clean. So Marshall Plexi, whether it's a, you know, JTM 45 style or, or a super lead or super bass, these amps all have a bit of not only a certain mid-range quality to them, which I also think is important because sometimes the fuzz face circuit can be a little more scooped than say the tone benders in the mid-range. So the Marshalls have more mid-range, so it's bringing some of those mids back. So that's why using a, a fuzz face with like a Fender, uh, a black panel Fender twin reverb, they're both pulling out mid-range, so it's gonna not always be the most flattering tone. So the Marshalls are rich in mid-range, but also they break up a lot very easily so they get crunchy and not even that loud. Well, let me say they're loud, but with the volume knob not 
have to be on 10. So a lot of times with some of the cleaner Fender amps, you really have to get that volume. Now I'm cooking to get it to start overdriving, but Marshall amps, they overdrive a little bit early. So this early overdriving of the, the Marshall British circuit in conjunction with the fuzz phase circuit, they really help each other out and they become a unit. And this is a lot of the way that our ears hear the fuzz face sound. These are some of the biggest associations with it is, is a fuzz face being run into an overdriven amplifier. Now, it doesn't have to be a full-out saturated amplifier, but an amp that's starting to break up or just above the, the area of a breakup. I do think the BC-108 is a little woolier and warmer than, say, the germanium circuit. It's just not as bright and brass. So I feel like the high end is just attenuated a little bit, which can be great if you're running into a really bright amp. On the inside of the PC-108, we have an adjustment for bias. So you can take the back plate off and you can turn the bias of the pedal down so you can get some of those really cool gated fuzz tones. Let's listen to a Stratocaster. This is going to have FSC 59 hand-wound pickups in it. I'm going to run into the BC-108 Sunface from Analog Man, and that is going to go into a Marshall Plexi, which is the SV-20H Plexi. Let's check it out. Now, I'm going to start off clean, and then I'm going to kick in the, the Sunface, and we can hear what it sounds like. <laughs> also jump through a couple of different pickups so you can hear some variation. This next example is going to use a Les Paul with uh, Voodoo 59 pickups in it, running into a Victoria 518, which is basically a tweed champ. This amp by nature is pretty dark. It doesn't have a tone knob on it. It only has a volume knob. The Sunface added a little more presence and just body to the sound of what was a fairly clean champ sound.
let's listen to some of those overtones I was talking about in like the ring modulator style effects using the BC-108 and the standard 2N that I have. So I'm going to start with the germanium and you can hear how there is considerably more ring modulation style effect that's happening than in the BC-108, which is still a small amount exists, but it's really not nearly as much. Now silicone. I'm going to play with a Strat into a Vox AC15 and use the BC108 to hear what kind of tones I could get with that combination. Let's check out something that's more in the blues rock vein. Les Paul, Marshall SV20, Sunface BC 108. Let's dig into the volume cleanup of the BC-108. Here I'm going to play a Fender Stratocaster into the Sunface BC-108 into a Marshall SV-20H Plexi. Now I'm going to turn the bias all the way down on the inside of the Sunface BC-108. 
also pair it with synths and um, keyboard instruments like the Mellotron and get this really menacing sound by running the Mellotron through the BC-108, but also playing with the volume knob on the Mellotron as I turned it up and down. It acted very unexpectedly and created this very terrifying tone, which is super cool. Check it out. I was really into this TV show called Dark. Actually, I still am. I just wrote this composition at the time that I was watching that show a lot. And there was some really great composition in that, I think, by Ben Frost. And this is what led me or inspired me to get into this piece, which I just feel like is in some ways very ugly in its overtones. But also there's a, a, a mysteriousness or a nostalgia or beauty inside of that darkness that you're not really sure what to make of. I also like to mention I was using an Ampete 88S amp switcher to jump through the different amplifiers I have. So the Ampete basically allows you to connect multiple amplifiers to a switcher. And then if I want to run to the Vox, it's very easy for me to switch into the Vox or into one of the tweeds I have or the Marshall or the Headstrong. This has been a pretty valuable tool for me getting a lot of different sounds in the studio. I hope you enjoyed episode eight of Anatomy of Tone. As always, if you're interested in private lessons, mentorships, or consultations on tone and gear, you can reach out to me on my website, which is anatomyofguitartone.com. I'm going to leave you with a composition this week called Convection. And during the pandemic, I composed a lot of music that was inspired by a book called Soviet Space Graphics. The collection of illustrations in the book were illustrations that were made during the cold war when the space race was happening and I found it fascinating that scientists in the USSR and the United States were living these parallel lives trying to do the same thing trying to get to space trying to get to the moon or explore outside our own planet and also it just made me think of of how lonely that probably was for the, the astronauts and that great wall of separation of information and exploration just seemed really interesting to me. It was um, almost like a, an alternate universe that we never saw as Americans. And also, there was something that seemed very lonely about the early cosmonauts that flew into space and some of them lost their lives. And a lot of the music I composed had a certain element of loneliness based around it just from those thoughts. This piece I wrote using acoustic piano and Mellotron is called Convection.